Hi everyone, welcome to Trader Chats, unique perspectives from seasoned traders. I'm your host, Imran Larka, founder of Options Insight and 20-year professional options trader. As you might know, I became a trading mentor about three years ago, but I thought these conversations would be a great way for my students to gain valuable perspectives from some of the professional traders that I know and respect. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Trader Chats, everyone. In today's episode, I've got Tony Greer from TG Macro, and the name of the episode is Respect the Tape. Tony, thank you so much for making the time to be here. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Imran. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate that. No, it's great. It's great. I mean, you know, I thought I'd been trading a long time, given that I've been in the game for 20 years, but you've been doing it a lot longer than me. So I'm sure myself and the viewers can learn a lot from you. And that's why I brought you on. Right on. Um, so what, before we start, for, for like the one or two people who don't know who you are, why don't you give us the uh, TLDR on your career and kind of, you know, what you've been doing in trading for all these years? Yeah, sure, Imran. The, uh, you know, I'll try to give you the, the uh, quick and dirty on my career. I got out of college looking for a job on a trading desk, and I was determined to get one. Um, I got started in FX at Sumitomo Bank. Um, I moved from there to UBS, uh, where I spent about two years working for UBS in FX and commodities, spent six months in Zurich. And that's where I met the people at J. Aaron, which is the commodity trading arm of Goldman Sachs. Um, they wind up luring me very easily over to their shop where I spent about six years um, trading commodities and, <clears throat> excuse me, really learning everything I know about um, the rigors of being a serious um, speculator and trader and investor. Mm -hmm. um, I was there for, you know, through the Goldman Sachs IPO and got a great life lesson because I left Goldman Sachs after that um, to trade the tech stocks that I had been investing in for about five or six years um, because I had this vision that the NASDAQ was going to go up forever and I was going to be able to retire on investing on these technology stocks. So when I left um, Goldman Sachs to, to uh, trade the NASDAQ in March of 2000, literally, with the NASDAQ at its peak of 5K and the commodity markets about to go into a 10-year super cycle, I had to figure out how I was going to sort of, you know, make myself known in the markets with it from a different angle. So I became sort of equity, not sort of, I became an equity sales trader by digging into my Rolodex and figuring out that I had a lot of contacts in the equity market. And I really started educating them on what was going on in the natural resources space and kind of giving them a lesson on how commodities trade and how to anticipate what was going to happen in some of the stocks that they were trading and built out a really, really good book of business. Um, but the main underlying driver of how I was acquiring clients and doing business was um, through the um, distribution of a, a market note that I was writing every morning, um, just to basically to give those equity clients an idea of what was going on in the commodity world and in the macro world. So obviously that morphed into um, the Morning Navigator, which is the newsletter I launched in 2016, um, right before election day with a big bet that Trump was gonna win that election and the world was gonna change dramatically. 
So since then, I've been navigating markets fairly successfully, knock on wood, for you know, a, a really large set of clients um, that span from every type of, of, of market participant, which I'm extremely proud of, from, from a day trader to family offices to portfolio managers that manage multi-billion dollar you know, sums of money at large plain vanilla institutions. And uh, so I have a really wide client base that, that spans the globe, quite honestly. And I spend my time, you know, staying in touch with those clients and publishing my newsletter four days a week about what I see going on in the markets and trying to guide um, investors to sort of shape their portfolios the right way, which I feel now more than ever is probably, you know, the most important thing that you can do for the money that you have invested. So we can leap off any point from there, Imran, but I think that covers us kind of up to the present in my fifth year of uh, writing The Morning Navigator. Yeah, I mean, I I basically seen you from Real Vision, right? And you know, I the thing that really struck me about you seeing you, you know, nearly every week on Real Vision daily briefing, was just how straightforward you are about the market and and your, you know, you've been banging the drum about commodities for a long time, and obviously that's your speciality that area. But you know, I, I was also of the view that having some real assets in your portfolio was going to be very, very important, right? Around sort of twelve to eighteen months ago, um, and and you know, having you there, drumming that point home every week really gave me more confidence to have a very large allocation in commodities relative to what maybe the average portfolio allocation would be, and and I and I want to thank you for that. Really, that that's it's, it's helped me, and I'm sure you've helped a load of other people, but. One of the other things you say quite a lot is about price action and respecting the tape, right? And kind of letting markets confirm your thesis before really going after a position, right? And I think that's something that I've learned through my experiences as well. Um, and I just want to kind of pick your brains on, you know, how you think about that and any core principles you have or how do you kind of stop yourself from getting chopped up? Because sometimes if you're a price action junkie, you can be chart chasing a little bit, right? You know, you can be like, okay, it's going up now, so I'm going to buy it, but then it, but then it just sells off in your face. Like, how do you manage that? Because I agree with respecting the tape and respecting price action, but then how do you then balance that with not getting chopped around by volatility, basically? Great question, Iran. You know, it's it's a question that I face a lot of time. Uh, excuse me, very often um, when I get new subscribers and they see the, the positions that I've been in for a while that are profitable and their first their gut reaction is to write back and say, hey, is this a good time to get into these, you know, these names that you've been in? And my answer is 99.9% .9 of the time, no, this is not a good time, right? And, and that always leads me at least to get the customer to sort of take a breath and say, oh, okay, I don't, I don't okay, I got it. I don't have to rush right into this now, something that's been rallying for nine months and is 25% away from its 200-day moving average that's not even something that I'm going to pile into, right? So Imran, everything comes down to really identifying first the performance that, that pulls you into the name, right? I, I'm, I, my system, I have a system where I'm monitoring a number of securities and how much they move on a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual basis, right? And that's the sort of lens that I do my stock screening or security screening through, 
And that's what allows me to first identify the things that are trending, right? They'll start to show the same performance across days, weeks, months, and quarters. And when you look at that, you say, okay, this is something that's going from the bottom left to the top right of my screen. I got to figure out where it makes sense for me to get in Mm. and where it makes sense for me to trade out. So I'm a big technical analyst and I, I employ moving averages and trend lines, you know, really nuts and bolts of, of uh, technical analysis mm-hmm. to, you know, guide myself and clients into the right time to mm-hmm. buy things. And for example, you know, we um, for a really good recent example, just to cite one is um, in the last week or so we've seen energy stocks just ripping to new highs, you know, almost every day where we had just seen a big pullback in the metal space. So for me and my clients and and my book and my newsletter, I was, you know, guiding my clients, you know, this is a big pullback in metals. The trend is higher. This is a pullback that we should participate in because I like the risk reward here. Mm -hmm. And that's really what it's all about. Um, Imran is lining up that risk reward, right? When you look at the chart and something like um, XLE is 20% of its moving average, it doesn't look like you have as good risk reward on a long trade from there as you did if you say looked at the XME chart, metals and mining, which had just pulled back into 200-day moving average, very long-term support level. And mm-hmm. I guided my clients into that ETF and some of the underlying names, which have also bounced. But the bottom line is that was the right point for risk reward. And not two months ago when XME was sailing away above its 200 day moving average, right? Like that's not the way that I like to enter. So, you know, everything is a, there's a lot of patience involved with the way that I trade. That's the word I was about to say. Yeah. I was like, my takeaway from what you've just said is zooming out and having some patience basically, right? Not, not being in a rush to get into these positions, right? Just be like, zoom out, figure out what you structurally like and what you want from from what those different uh, duration performances are telling you and say, this is what I want my book to look like, but I don't need to have that book tomorrow, right? I will let the market come to me and I'll get in at opportune moments when the market gives me those, basically. Exactly. So it's kind of, as you, can, as you now see, um, that's how I employ sort of a radar screen mm-hmm. and a view matrix. So my radar screen is the sort of trades and, and views that I've developed, um, but haven't put on, on on my book yet, but mm-hmm. sort of the ones that my process of following the markets and looking at charts have led me to, mm-hmm. right? A lot, a lot of times, you know, I'll be bearish something like software, for example, and it will be the inverted story of XLE, where mm-hmm. you'll be bearish something and it's just riding so far below moving averages getting so damaged that you can't jump in at that price, no, right? Exactly. You have to wait for the latecomers to get burnt to see a mm-hmm. kind of retracement in the move. And then you got to wait for it to get to a good level where your moving average is really good, where you can sort of look for a four to one return on your trade, you know? And, 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 how, and how do you think about sizing then? Like, are you, I'm one of those people who likes to average into positions. So I will very rarely trade my full size in one clip. Right. So because because I don't believe I'm going to be that amazing at my timing every time. So I'm going to be like, give myself two or three bullets to build into a position. And you know what? If if it goes right immediately, at least I make some money. But if it doesn't go right immediately, I have the chance to 
averaging at a better level and you know I've predetermined the amount of exposure that I'm willing to build into so how, how do you think about that yeah that you know you do have to employ um you know what I call partial executions you know when you when you talk about sizing a trade I immediately um conjure the trade size increments that I think about in my trading account to for starters right and that's very specific for me I try to risk, I try to have specific buckets of sizes of risk that I like to put on mm -hmm. where, for example, um, one of my positions will never be more than 10% of my account. Mm -hmm. This way, if I'm risking 10% on that trade, then I won't lose more than 1% of my capital, right? And if I have that kind of baseline mechanism for every trade, mm -hmm. I know where I'm in there. So. Now, to speak to your point about trade entry and averaging, mm -hmm. that's something that I also employ where I will take one of those um, trade allocation cap, um, piles of capital and say, okay, I'm going to divide this by three and get into this trade yeah. and pick three spots to get in. And to be quite honest with you, 75% of the time I am buying, I'm sort of adding to strength. You know what I mean? If that's fair, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to average down. So okay, so your, your second clip is often worse entry than no, your first clip. No, the opposite. Oh, oh, yeah, that's fair to say a worse entry. That's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. A worse entry because, you know, I'm still generally, you know, everything here is an art, not a science. So for me, there's no rule that applies to every single situation. Mm -hmm. Right. And in that it is a little bit of an art, not a science you can say, okay, well, I'm going to be an adult here and I may need to average down, right? I want to buy natural gas stocks on this dip, right? I don't know where the bottom is going to be, so I may have to average down. Mm -hmm. That is something that I will do very, very carefully, like mm -hmm. 10 times more carefully if I spot something that has been trending higher and finally broke down into moving averages and is consolidating, mm -hmm. because then I get the opportunity. That's when I'm salivating quite honestly, Imran, because I'm, I can believe that the trend will continue. Mm. I can believe in my own ability to time when it is going to come out of consolidation and back into trend mode. Mm -hmm. And then also, you know, a lot of times that you'll get a security that dips below all the moving averages. What I like to do, if I'm playing that security still from a bull market position and a bull trending position, is just use the moving averages for my points of entry. And if you can picture it, you know, a lot of times you'll see a chart recover the, you know, the 50 day and then the hunt or the 200 day and then the 100 day and then the 50 day. And then it's above all the moving averages and has a real shot technically to, to test its recent high. Mm -hmm. you know, so I really like that type of trade where I can buy the, buy the recovery of the 200 day and add on the recovery of the 100 day and put my final piece on, on the recovery of the 50 day moving average. And while they are three consecutively worse prices, mm -hmm. I have more confidence that I'm going with the right, with the markets. Markets right? confirming, I, yeah, the market's confirming that you're doing the right thing basically. Bingo, exactly. Yeah. So that, that, you know, that is right there. Yeah. That is the birth of where the most successful trades that I've ever had on where it starts. 
and then mm-hmm. and then the and then the procedure from there is to bump your stop up along the way. Trail, trail stop, yeah, yeah. Trail stop, right? Exactly. So you. Listen. But I have to say, my experience of trailing stops is that you often trail your stop, and you're doing it because you're trying to be sensible and prudent about risk management. But then you get stopped out of a winning trade a lot when you do that as well. It's like if you had you just had you just respected your original stop, made peace with the idea that, that that's what you could lose. <laughs> You just you you just stay with the winner forever, basically, right? And that's really what you want to do when you're trading. You want to run those winners, and I think that trailing stop actually reduces your probability of running a winner quite quite often, in my experience. Right? Yeah, you know the, the stops, the, the trailing stops are tough at the beginning of a trade, right? When you're only ten or fifteen percent right so far, for example. Yeah, you've got that trailing stop. You're not really confident that you've got this trade nailed because you've only got a bit of a skin in it, right? You've only got a bit of a profit in it. You're like, yeah, it's not really paying me the way I'd really like it to, right? This is not going perfectly. For me right now, for example, in the oil trade where I've been long USO for two and a half years and I'm 225% in the money, you know, now I can put my stop in a lockbox below the market. Right yeah. where, where the you know I'm fine giving back profits when I've got that much in it. I would rather just be able to sleep at night saying, you know what, oil's 120. I don't think about getting out until like 85 offered. Yeah. You know, so I have like a lot of room now. I have yeah. room where I can scale out on a, on a rally and buy back on a dip and keep the same size position, but mm. keep improving my average. So yeah. that's the way I like to look at those kind of things. Right, right. And, um, and do you volatility adjust your position sizing as well? So you kind of, if it's nat gas, it's going to be much smaller positions than it is if it's like, I don't know, copper or something, right? If yeah. it's nat gas, I generally put on a 2-2 and then, be, and then begin, um, you know, trading. You know what I mean? <laughs> a pair of ballerina shoes. And I tiptoe very slowly. Exactly. <laughs> I stay. I, I haven't traded that gas in a long time. It's just it's just too too high octane for me right now. <laughs> it is and people don't realize that it's unbelievable, Imran. I have I have you know clients that that you know write back to me after I I write a bullish note in natural gas, and they're like, hey, should I buy some of these you know some of these producers yeah. right now? And you're like, good God, like you know, once again, no, you know, do not buy anything <laughs> right now. Let's talk about this and, and plot this out first. That's mm. always the response. So, uh, okay, let's, let's move on to a slightly different topic. So, so obviously, we've both been doing this a long time. Um, and, you know, a lot of traders I speak to have certain things that stick in their minds, right? Like war stories or memories from the market that just you're never going to forget. You know, it's a special situation that either went as you thought or was completely unexpected or... You know, what are your war stories or what are your and, and then on the back of that question, you know, are there any big blunders that you've made in trading that just stick with you and you just will never make again because it was quite traumatic and, you know, you, you really remember it clearly. <laughs> Imran, Imran, you set that question up so well that, that I can come up with one story that covers both. Oh, nice. You know, both a good war story and something that taught me the sort of basic, most basic tenets of my trading postulates today, which kind of start with don't get caught short physical commodities, right? right? So the setup in, of a war story is I was quoting the gold book while my partner at JRN with David Todd was quoting the silver book. And we were going into Easter weekend and this is Thursday before Good Friday. Mm-hmm. And 
to try to set the story up. We were trading, he was trading silver. I'm trading gold. Gold is like a $300 item. Silver is probably a $4 item, you know, in the high fours, 475 or something like that. Mm -hmm. So to cut to the chase, we've got an option expiration weekend over Easter weekend, right? Mm -hmm. And going into the, you know, everything is sort of fairly normal. The market's definitely, you know, firming up towards 480, mid 480s. And as the, the session is starting to die out, all of a sudden silver trades from 480 to 490 to 495. And going into the close, we've got clients calling us up and everybody is buying silver. And we're like, holy shit. So we get caught short silver on the bell at $5, right? Right. Right away, a client calls up after the bell and says, hey, can you, you know, through the sales desk says, hey, can you quote this client um, just silver and half a million ounces, right? And we just said, look, this thing just rallied 30 cents into the close. We have a position. We'll quote you a price, but it's not going to be a good price. And they were like, fine, I just need some liquidity. So we quoted them a price of 510 bid at 540. Oh, wow. Right? You were a bid through the level where it closed. Wow. Okay. Because we, we got lifted at $5. Yeah, yeah. This person yeah. sold back to us at 510 and we took a 10 cent loss on yeah. Thursday before Good Friday. Yeah, you'd be happy to just, yeah, yeah. Happy to say We would have taken that and been, whoo. Thank God. <laughs> so, the, so the salesperson goes, at 540, you sell half a million ounces of silver. So I look at I look at my partner and we both That's like, another eight percent higher than the close. Jesus. Right. And so now we don't know where it is. And we hear that Fibro Phillips Brothers is gonna exercise their 550 calls over the weekend. So they oh my god, they're gonna take delivery at 550. Bingo. Jesus. So okay. now, you know, now you're in a total scramble. Um, luckily, <laughs> what happened? Yeah, exactly. Well, so here the point is to, to, you know, to cut to the war story part of the one once Dave and I sort of settled up what our position was, which was short half a million ounces again by the time we went home, we were able to buy some off of our book. Like we had, you know, producers selling up to $5 and we were able to call up all those producers and say, you're filled, you're filled, you're filled, you're filled. Oh, they, yeah, they left some orders with you, basically. Standing orders right. to sell right. silver up towards $5. So we just scooped that silver in against what we lost to cut yeah. our short down. Yeah. Imran, you're talking about losing three, four, five million dollars on this trade if this goes wrong. Mm. right in your book so you know once dave and i got sorted out we're short half a million ounces we're going home we're going to attack this thing in tocom you know on on uh friday night on good friday and then attack it again sunday and we'll cut our position down um but the first thing we did was go to the bar across the street and do a shot of jack daniels because we were hoping to keep our jobs number one <laughs> and be able to trade out of it so to make a long story short we there, you know, we, we, we find some sellers in our customer book, you know, everything kind of levels out and we escape with our lives. But what did happen was on Fibro did exercise the 550 calls. We mm -hmm. woke up a whole bunch of sellers and we managed to piece the whole position together and trade out of it. We got short again. And to make a long story short, from a completely hairy situation, mm -hmm. traded out of it, but learned that like, You've got to take this commodity, you know, the, the, your liquidity, the timing of a quote, the nature of the position that you're getting stuck with, 
you know, the whole scenario, everything has to be taken into account. You just can't underestimate, you can't underestimate how much these things can move, right, in a short space of time. Right. I mean, yeah. there were, we had counterparts in the market that didn't have the selling on their books that we had, mm. quoted the same clients after the close and mm. lost silver and got brutalized because mm. they were short from 475 up to 550. Yeah, no, it's funny. Like, it's funny you say this about, you know, judging liquidity and things like that, because one of my biggest things that I remember was 2010, the um, European sovereign debt crisis, right? So that really kicked off in April, May that year. And um, the first three months of that year were so quiet and volatility was so depressed and liquidity was abundant. And I was, I was like running a desk over at um, Merrill's at the time, right? And um, we were just being encouraged to take on more and more size from clients. Like liquidity is there. You've got to gain market share. You've got to be, you've got to, you know, you've got to put up these big clients in these ridiculous size clips because it's fine. Nothing's going on. So, so we were encouraged to do that. And it's like, okay, fine, I'll do it. Felt a little bit uncomfortable, but all right, I'll do it. And we we're making some money. And then literally in the blink of an eye, the sovereign debt, you know, Greece has a problem. And in the blink of an eye, all that liquidity that you thought you had disappears. And you're stuck with these beastly positions that you are not getting out of basically, right? And then the market squeezes you. And let's just say the summer of that year was, was not a fun experience. Yeah, but it taught me a lot of lessons. Yeah, those, really those are the type of, you know, those are the scenarios that real blowups are made of, right? Yeah. Like the ones where you hear about desks losing millions and millions of dollars at a clip and, and shutting the desk down, firing a trader, yeah. whatever it is. I yeah. mean, it's illiquid also, risk. It's all about illiquid risk, right? Illiquid risk and traders yeah. getting caught off guard underestimating that, mm. right? They, people will quote prices to clients. Yeah. without even checking the liquidity in the market first, yeah, yeah. right? Which was an insane thing to start. And now when everything is electronically traded, you know, and there's no word of mouth trading anymore, no interbank market, nobody that you can go to that you've got a relationship with that'll say, do you a favor. Yeah. yeah, I'll help you out here. Look, I'm long some silver. I'll sell you some of this here, you know, to I'll sell you down 10 cents to help you out, you know, yeah, that, stuff, yeah. that stuff went on in the gentleman's market and you know true. that market is closed today so it's true that's true every man no, that was great that, that's that was a great story man i like that um Never all right another 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 piece of wisdom I'm, I'm after from you right so what are your thoughts around you know obviously you've been trading for ages you're clearly a commodity expert but do you believe in sticking to a certain asset class and becoming a specialist in that? And, or do you think there's value in, you know, sticking to a certain style of trading, but broadening your horizons across assets to just, because sometimes there's not a lot going on in certain assets, right? Sometimes it can be like, trust me, equities, I used to trade the FTSE for crying out loud. It would realize five vol and do nothing for six months. If I didn't go across the pond and start trading other indices, I would be bored out of my brain. I'd make no money. So, so what, what has been your experience of that and how do you view that? Yeah, that, that's another good question, Imran. You know, the, um, I used to have a, a, a book myself that would have natural resources, stocks, tech stocks. I'd have a small ophthalmic company in there. I'd have a biotech company. I'd be long, a European miner. And 
I would realize that there was no way to try to actually make money trading, right? That, that was just pure finger in the wind. I think I know where the market's going bullshit, right? And what I do now is dial into a sector that has a story to it, right? With something going on, i.e. energy, right? For the last two years, something serious going on. Dig into that story, dig into those trends for several months in a row, become an energy specialist and trade nothing else but figure out if this is worth sinking all of your time into to the mm-hmm. point that you can get really good at trading, you know, a number of these, a small number of these names mm-hmm. over, um, over a short period of time to the point that you're comfortable taking risk. And that's how I've always, you know, well, I should say that not always, that's how since my methods of trading have led, have been market driven, that's where I found the most success, if that's fair. And that's sort of saying, cut out the ophthalmic company, that's taking a flyer, forget about the European metals and minor, because now you've got currency risk, forget about the biotech idea that your buddy told you about, because that thing's been sitting here for six months and might sit here for another six months. And employ your tactical skills to what's going on and only to what's going on. Like I've I've been so focused, Imran, in the last year that I probably haven't traded any stock or any ETF outside of those that are within the oil and gas or metals and mining industry. Interesting. Interesting. That's fair to say. And it's just because, you know, when, when the story came to life, Mm-hmm. That, you know, the commodity market was finally going to react to the Fed doubling its balance sheet and the ECB doubling its balance sheet. And mm-hmm. we were finally going to get that, you know, transfer from technology driven paper, liquidity driven markets to hard asset driven, um, you know, non-technology driven markets. Mm-hmm. You know, once you realize that that pivot was coming you know, that's something that you can really dig in and hang your hat in. It seems to me like that trade is developing with a very, you know, long time horizon on it because things feel yeah. very different this time. I mean, so- there's no doubt that trades worked and there's no doubt there's been a lot of value in being, you know, digging into that space to see where the alpha is. Right. But what about the argument of diversification? Like, what about the argument that you're a commodities bull? And whilst energy looks like the, the fastest horse in that race, why not have a little bit of ags and a little bit of metals and stuff like that, but just to diversify in case something happens in the natural gas market that makes it dump 30% next week, right? Is there any, what would you say to that? Same trade. Same trade. Same trade. You know, you can buy, you know, the natural, the natural gas and the crude oil trade is just the tip of the spear. Right. The natural the natural gas price is the tip of the spear for everything ag. Right. Because they rely so much on. Agreed. Agreed on the fertilizer thing. Yeah. Fertilizer story right through. So that's the tip Mm -hmm. of that spear. So really all you're doing is not diversifying. I see. Okay. So what you're saying is if you really understand the drivers in what's driving the whole commodity space. It's all on energy, basically, right? It's just saying, right. Iman, we're, say we're long physical, physical energy, physical natural gas, physical oil. Say we get long the producers on that, right? We buy a bit mm-hmm. of XOP. We buy some Southwestern energy, some this and that. 
And then we decide that we're going to get into the ags too, because they're going up with grain markets and mm. we buy the, some grains and we buy the ags. Mm. Then just say natural gas goes down a dollar. Everything goes down a dollar. You know what I mean? Like that yeah. the whole trade across the board gets slaughtered. So no, I, I get your point. I mean, I guess opportunistically, I'm fine with it. You know, other charts time differently than than the energy trade. You know, sometimes there might be an ag trade that is a late bloomer and consolidated. Well, yeah, this is I'm trying my best to counter what you're saying to see if I can find anything there. Right. So what if the energy trades already played out, but you think the ags trade, which is dependent on the energy trade, is lagging? Do you then rather than adding ags and keeping your energy, do you switch from energy to ags? Because that's where the juice still is, basically. I do. I do. Right. I do because I'm still a trader, Imran. And if I've had the energy mm-hmm. and I bought the energy into support, and upside or, or just had a reasonable position on now I've got energy that is 25% away from its moving averages. Yeah. That's, that's the first place I'm going to go to raise cash. Yeah. Right. Yeah. To, to, to say, and I just did this and I, and, and illustrated it really, really, really clearly and loudly in the navigator as I was doing it, um, essentially for a family office client of mine, you know, mm-hmm. I recommended we sold 25% of our XOP position that we've been riding for over a year just so that we could buy some of this dip in metals and mining stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. So things like that, where you say, okay, this money look here, looks like it's a better risk of going higher than Mm. the money that just ran. So yeah, I'm, I'm rotating in and out of favorability all the time. Fair enough. So you're rotating to where you see the alpha, but arguably the driver, the macro driver is the same across all of them. So therefore you don't just like own all of them because it's just kind of increasing your exposure to the same thing, the same right. dynamic. Right. Okay, that makes a load of sense. Yeah, and I appreciate that. That's really good. And that really helps. I think people will really, you know, appreciate hearing that to see how you think about things. Um, and then another sort of question, a little bit different is um, what's more important to you? And I'm, I'm assuming, I, I kind of have a guess of what you're going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. So what's more important to you? Do you think it's fundamentals or is it positioning, right? When you're thinking about a trade, like what, what matters more, fundamentals or positioning to you? Man, you know, to me, you know, to me as a trader, the positioning issue is always the last issue, right? Okay. So if I have negotiated my way or navigated my way into a trade smartly, it means that at some level, I've been patient, I've waited for their, I've waited for a pullback, I've waited for that trade to look less favorable than it has on its highs, right? Um, so it's, I'm trying to think of which way I can go with this. You're almost saying you've all through your entry point selection, you've almost already taken advantage of positioning basically. Yeah. So it's it's the kind of thing where I want the positioning issue is something that arises late in the trade. For example, you know, we knew fundamentally that oil, for example, wasn't going to be priced in negative dollar terms, right. For a very long time, right. That was the fundamental lead to that story. That was, that was the first trip in there. Then um, once you're in the oil trade, the only thing, you know, once the market is starting to get, you know, sentiment is going from zero where everyone's bearish to 100 where everyone's bullish. And Mm -hmm. now as sentiment proceeds through 75, 80, 90 towards the most bullish it can be, 
Mm. That's when you get positioning starting to become a factor because now everybody knows about the trade. It's about to be on the front page of the newspaper and everybody's got it on in some capacity, right? So that sort of managing the positioning is usually the last part of a successful trade, mm-hmm. right? So for example, managing the positioning um, in oil has been you know, fairly easy because the spec length has not gotten enormous no. in any way. Right. So for me, yeah. there's been no rush to get out of the oil trade because I don't sense that there's a lot of length that could topple it over. Right. I'm yeah. rather right now, the oil market to me feels like the risk is that this thing goes up ten dollars in two sessions. Right. Because we're just I, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, I was looking at the volatility complex within oil yesterday and I was like and how it's skewed. I was surprised to see the skews for the put side, not for the call side. Right. And the only way I can explain that is people who own oil are buying risk reversals against it. They're buying puts and selling calls to protect themselves. So there's a bid to the skew. But but, you know, I was surprised because obviously when when it all kicked off in Russia, you had a massive call skew because everyone didn't know where the top would be. Mm. But, you know, over recent months, it's massively flipped the other way, which and I agree with you. I think the risk is higher. I don't think the risk is of a massive collapse right now. So. You know, we're, le- we're going to be leaning on, we're, we're leaning on, you know, we've already verbally and, and visibly started pivoting toward the Saudis to pump more. And as we've known since like the Bank America call from Thanksgiving 2021 mm. was that Saudis don't have spare capacity. No, exactly. You know, so, so that, that sort of, I've had that in the back of my mind for three months or excuse me, for seven months now mm-hmm. that has allowed me to stay in the trade mm-hmm. and they still don't have spare capacity and the market's not long. I mean, look, the, the, again, we're talking, we're calling this respect the tape, right? Last week, they tried to raise production quotas. Market said bothered, yeah, and rallied. I mean, that, if you respect the tape, that tells you the market knows they've got no spare capacity, right? The, right, the ultimate respect the tape when you're, you know, a bull market trader, you're long a security, what is more confirmation that you're right than a dip that is steep in price and short in duration? Mm, right so so when a bull market dips super steep and comes roaring back you know you're like fucking a it's on i mean this thing there's buyers everywhere right that's all it tells you is that there's buyers at every price so i hope we're not a massive counter indicator now tony and we're going to call the top in energy right now (laughs) it's okay imran i've called 15 tops in energy in the last two years by talking about it so i have no problem with it (laughs) yeah the pnl is going the right way it's all right yeah yeah exactly well you like you just lightened up anyway right so you 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 don't mind a dip um all right that's cool that's cool okay so um Slightly different topic of conversation then. So obviously, you know, you've been doing it a long time. You've been a trader, you've been a salesman. So what kind of made you start the morning navigator? You know, what, what, what were your motivations there? You know, how long do you think you're going to keep doing it? Is it, is it something that, you know, is there, is there something else driving that passion and that, that desire to do that newsletter? Like, t- tell me more about that. Cause it's similar to me, right? I'm doing similar things to you. So I just, like to know what your what drives you there yeah i guess the driver behind the navigator is the desire to sort of um you know offer a a sort of point of mentoring for people that don't really understand how to take risk or or know Mm -hmm. where to look to to figure out where they should be taking risk you Mm -hmm. know i I understand that for the for the novice trader and novice investor that can be really intimidating right it's like trying to pick a bottle of wine um, off of the sparks menu, 
you know, there, there's 6,000 bottles. They're from all seven continents. And where, you know, where do I start? You know what I mean? Like, and, and I feel like markets can be that way towards people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's always been um, my, my, you know, first of all, I write so that I know what I think about markets, if that's fair to say. Oh, hundred percent. That yeah. helps you so much figure out, get, just get your thoughts in one place, right. And figure out what you think is really helpful. Yeah, I agree. For, force yourself to organize them, force them to make mm-hmm. sense, you know, kick the tires until, you know, it all lines up and you can see what you're driving at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's super important. So um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of how else I can speak to that. But like, do you, I mean, it's one of those things like, so you think you're just going to keep doing this for until, I mean, is this like your retirement trade basically, right? You, 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 there's no, uh, <laughs> you know, I've discovered that I'm really, I, I've discovered that I'm, you know, f- through surviving the markets for 30 years, right. And never bailing out. I, I you know, I've decided that I'm a survivor in, in this market and mm-hmm. my next iteration of being a survivor is, you know, to sort of take the knowledge that I've learned and share it with people, mm-hmm. see if I can help other people invest. You know, I've become an entrepreneur, but I feel like I'm kind of learning that I've always been one because I had to be one to survive the markets from 1990 through 2022 um, and always have a relatively strong position in them in terms of, you know, what's at least making a living. So yeah. I think that, you know, this is it's very much the retirement trade in some level because now I can sort of build a business uh, alongside trading my account and, and managing, you know, my own trading account. And that's something that I'm getting really, really uh, addicted to. It's quite, you know, it's quite rewarding, isn't it? When not only are you managing your own money and using your skill set, but you're helping other people do the same thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, there's so much to it. The markets are so big that they allow for that. Right. It's yeah. like it's, it's like taking a bachelor party to Las Vegas. There's room for everyone. Right. And, and, and as much as we've got, you know, our followers on the navigator and in my Slack channel, mm-hmm. none of that is too big that it's going to be, you know, a market moving thing. Right. So we can just sit here, observe markets. Markets are generally deep enough for us to trade in the sectors that we want and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, navigate the sectors we want. So Mm -hmm. if I can continue trading my account aggressively, um, smartly investing for my future and help others do both Mm -hmm. at the same time, then then that's a happy life for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I certainly agree. I mean, and on the whole trading side of things, I mean, I've always thought of the reason I love trading is I see it as the puzzle that you can never fully solve. Right. So it's just always interesting, always intellectually stimulating. You're constantly, I mean, the market schools you on a regular basis, right? Tries to inflict as much pain as it can on as many investors as it can. So definitely keeps life interesting. Um, I mean, what keeps you doing it? You know, what keeps you trading and, and what keeps you excited about trading after doing it for so long? You know, that that's it right there. And it's kind of, a, kind of along the lines of, um, I have like sort of friends and family that, that look at me in awe and they're like, how, how do you, you know, write about markets? Like, how do you come in and write something about markets every day? Yeah. And I'm more of the, I'm more of the mental mindset where I turn on the screens and, and number one, I don't know which to, thing to write about first. Cause it and just speaks two, to you, right? The markets too. You've got to, you've got to shut me up about what's going on. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. I turn on my screen and write 10,000 words about <laughs> markets right now. <laughs> You know, so and they're always changing, yeah. you know, so that that's the thing yeah. it's that 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 puzzle that, you know, every day you get a new bit of information 
and that contributes to the picture of the trade and you've got to make your decisions. And it's kind of like, you know, that competitive thing, like being in a sports match and, you know, playing hockey or lacrosse, it's all, you know, last minute reactionary competitive, you know, and it's self-survival type of skills start to build in there. And, and I think that once you develop those and, and um, that's the most liberating thing, Imran, about trading is that uh, learning how to trade is the biggest piece of freedom you can ever afford yourself. Yeah, it's true. That's and why so many people want to learn how to trade, right? It's true. There it is right there. You know, you can figure out how to trade. You don't have to report to anybody for the rest of your life. So there's, there's a lot to be said for that. And it's not easy. That's the game plan. That is that's the game, game plan. plan. Yeah. And it's not easy, but it can be done. So Tony, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to leave it there because you've been very generous in your time already. And I know we're, we're approaching the hour, but thank you so much for showing up on Trader Chats. It was, it was first, it was a pleasure meeting you and I'm sure the audience, you know, will really appreciate all the wisdom you've been, you know, giving out in this, in this episode. It's it fantastic. Oh. Imran, I love I love your energy, man. I really appreciate the way you went about this so tactfully, and I think you really pulled out some some actual knowledge in um for your clients and your listeners, which is really about the yeah, best. Thing you can offer if, before you go, before you go, tell them where that tell people where they can find you, uh, Navigator on Twitter, etc. Yeah, yeah, you can find my website is tgmacro.com. Very simply, there's a big um you know there's some samples of my work, some um a write-up about my background there. If anybody needs it, um, you can find me on Twitter at TG Macro. Feel free to DM me if you're listening to this podcast and say you're a friend of Imran's or a listener and you have a question, I'd be happy to help you. And um, if anyone wants to email me, it's Tony at TGMacro.com. Happy to help people. Brilliant. Cheers, Tony. And I'm definitely going to be bringing you back. So uh, I, look forward, soon. I yeah. look forward to it, Imran. Hopefully we made some good calls here. We'll see what happens. Take care, buddy. Cheers. Be good. Peace. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. To learn more about Options Insight and our trading community, please visit us at www.options-insight.com or you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and also follow us on Twitter at options underscore insight. Until next time, thanks.